Next week, I'm starting a little mini-series on summer reflections. I've been doing this the last couple years now, that when I go on vacation, I take a passage of Scripture. And that's the only thing I, I meditate on for two weeks. And actually, it happened to be John chapter 7, but specifically, John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38, where Jesus says these words, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He or whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, streams of living water will flow from within him. And then verse 39 is a little commentary. By that he meant the spirit. So for the next three weeks, starting next week, we're going to do a little mini-series, Summer Reflections upon that passage of Scripture verse. I actually could preach three sermons on the word anyone. Anyone. Think about it. Anyone. And then I'm proud to announce the last Sunday in August, you won't want to miss we have the premiere of our youth pastor who will be sharing in there. So uh, give it up for Pastor Paul, who will be sharing the last Sunday in August. But today, I get to preach to the choir. Why do I say that? Because the last message in this series on Stay Positive is on generosity. And I'll tell you, I don't know of a more generous church than you. Over this past year, three missionaries, Jeff Hartzenfeld, the Abusos, and just two weeks ago, Judy Mensch, three missionaries who go to many churches all around this nation, talked about they've never been at a more generous church than First Assembly of God in Freehold. And, and they said... I, Pastor, I can't believe people just came up with these Pentecostal handshakes. We're out there by our table and, and people are shaking our hands and they're slipping us money. They said, I've never been a part of a more generous church. So I say I'm preaching to the choir because today we're going to talk about generosity. And, and basically, I was going to make a one-point sermon and it was going to be this. Keep doing what you're doing. Let's pray. <laughs> In our text this morning, in Luke chapter 10, a man who is an expert in the law, he comes to Jesus with a question. And the question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus responds with a question. What does the law say? And what a great question to ask an expert in the law. What does the law say? And this man says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor." As yourself. 
And Jesus commanded the lawyer for answering correctly. But the conversation didn't end there. This expert in the law wanted to make sure he had it right. He wanted to make sure he was right before God. And in fact, the scripture says he wanted to justify himself. So he asked the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responded with this parable. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of a robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, He took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return... I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus looked at that expert in the law who asked that question. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus asked him another question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus said, go, go, do likewise. You may be seated. Along with reflecting upon John chapter 7, mornings I would take a look at this passage of scripture knowing that I was going to preach on generosity and This is the first thing that popped out to me. In this passage of scripture, there are three very distinct attitudes towards life. Now, follow along with me. Three distinct attitudes towards life. The first attitude we see is that of the robber. And his attitude is, what's yours is mine. Hey, we saw it this week. I don't know if you saw the news, but there was a, a bishop who was preaching. And while he was preaching his message, robbers came and stole jewelry from him and his wife and then just took off. I don't, did you see it? What's yours is mine. This attitude speaks about the depravity of mankind. How wicked, how greedy I have a right to everything, even though it may be yours 
It's mine. And that's the attitude of the robbers. And unfortunately, in this depraved world, this fallen world, we see that attitude exists among some. The second attitude towards life is we see this in the, in the priest and the Levite. What's mine is mine. Hey, I earned it. I worked hard for it. I possess it, and it's mine. And because it's mine, I'm not willing to share. I'm not willing to sacrifice. I'm not willing to forfeit. I'm not willing to give that which I have worked for, which I have earned. It's mine, and it's, I have a right to it. It's mine. We call that selfishness. We call it being stingy. And there are some who live with that principle. I've worked hard for everything I have. What's mine is mine. And then the third attitude we see in this parable, attitudes towards life, is that of the Samaritan. His attitude is, what's mine is yours. That which God has given to me. I'm willing to use for the good of others. That which I have, I'm willing to sacrifice and give and forfeit for the good of others. And I see in this Samaritan one who is generous. I see a generous attitude. What's mine is yours. One of my favorite authors, Andrew Murray, says it this way. The world asks, what does a man own? What do you own? What do you have in life? Christ asks, how does he use it for me? It's pretty profound. The world asks, what do you own? Christ says, how do you use it for me? So this morning what I want to do is I want to take a look at how this Samaritan used what God gave him for others. What made him a generous man? The first thing I took note of in the scripture is I want you to be aware of his awareness. His awareness Listen, you don't have to go very far to find someone in need. You don't have to go very far at all to find someone in need. There are people in need all around us. Scripture says that as he traveled, some translations say as he journeyed, as he went about life, as he went about his travel plans, as he went about his routine, he did not do it with his head in the sand. He did not do it with blinders on. He went about doing life, being aware of his surroundings. Now, let's be honest. We're not always aware of our surroundings. Sometimes we walk around with our head in the sand, we walk around with blinders, and there are people in need right around us, and we just pass them by. 
And as he went about his normal routine, someone who had been beaten up and beaten down and thrown to the side of the road like a piece of garbage, someone worthless, meaningless, He was aware. And scripture says, he what? He saw. He saw this man lying along the road. He saw his pain. He saw his suffering. He saw his hardship. And even in the busyness of that day of travel, he was willing to respond. Even though he had plans of his own. Even though he had his own agenda. Even though he went along. He saw. And we'll see him stop. Had no one else seen this man? Have others passed him by? (laughs) Scripture says there was a priest and a Levite. Who passed by on the other side. They too saw. They too were aware. But they were not willing. And they passed them by. Now we know that they could not touch anything dead. But I mean, come on. Go, go see if he is dead. And as I was thinking, I was just reflecting upon my own life. I'm sure there have been times when I've been busy on my own agenda, so focused with blinders and my head in the sand, that I have passed others who have been in need. Now, the need may not be physical. The need may not be emotional. But you don't have to look very far to find someone in need spiritually, in need of Jesus. For the lost is all around us. And shouldn't we be more generous with what God has given to us that we're willing to give to others who are still in spiritual darkness? Jesus said these words, Do not say four more months than the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Listen, there's nothing more frustrating. I didn't do it this year, but other years I've planted tomato plants. And you go on vacation and there's this tomato that you know you should pick, but you don't pick because it's still not quite ripe. And you get home from vacation and that ripe tomato has ripened so that it's fallen off the vine and it just rots on the ground. Man, I'm telling you, there are too many people who are in need of Jesus. The fields are ripe unto harvest, but they're rotting on the ground. we got to get our heads out of the sand and become aware of those who need Jesus. What makes this story even so more remarkable is it says a Samaritan. A Samaritan. Now, the man who was beaten and robbed, in verse 30, it says, He came down from Jerusalem, which implies he was Jewish. 
In fact, some translations will say a Jewish man. Now we know that the Jews despised the Samaritans. They hate them so much that they did not want to associate with them. In fact, they would go way out of the way so they wouldn't even have to travel through Samaria to have contact with them. When did it all start? Why was this such a hatred? Because in 1 Kings chapter 14, remember we have the division of the kingdom, the separation of the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Solomon dies. Rehoboam, his son, becomes the, the king. He levies a heavy tax, even heavier than Solomon. There, there's a revolt, and ten of the tribes to the north revolt, and Jeroboam becomes their king. Two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin, tribe of Judah. And right from the beginning, Jeroboam, king of the north, sets up Samaria as their capital city. You don't have to go down to Jerusalem. He set up idols in Dan and Bethel that they could do their worship. 200 years later, the Assyrians come in, capture the northern kingdom, and the Israelites are now intermarrying with the Assyrians. That which was against the law. They're intermarrying with the Assyrians. And therefore, that's why the Jews call them dogs or a half-breed. And even when the southern kingdom was released from Babylonian captivity, it was the Samaritans who gave them a hard time constantly about rebuilding Jerusalem. A Samaritan. As he is about on his travel plans, this Samaritan saw a man. And he didn't say, oh, he's one of those. No. He traveled, he saw, and he responded with compassion. Scripture says he took pity. Some translations say he had compassion. Now, compassion, he took pity. The original word in the Greek means this. It means to have an inward feeling of distress. You ever have an inward feeling of distress? I mean, you, you, you just... To have an inward feeling of distress... Because of the suffering or the misfortune of someone else. And here was this Jew who suffered a misfortune, who was suffering. And even though this Samaritan had animosity towards this man, it didn't override the feeling of grief, the feeling of distress, this, oh. And he took pity on him. And as he took pity on him, he couldn't ignore this distress of the misfortune of this one whom he hated. He went to him. Come on, somebody. He went to him. This distress caused the love 
A compassion that would not pass him by. His pain, his suffering caused the distress that even though they were miles apart, that gap closed because of the pity and the compassion. Do you know in Scripture, at least ten times, it refers to Jesus being moved with compassion? At least ten times. Let me just share a couple with them. When he saw the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, he, 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 he was moved with distress. He had this, because they, they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And he, he, he moved with compassion. As Jesus traveled, he heard two blind men call out, have, have mercy on us, son of God, son of David, have mercy on us. And once again, as these men who were blind called out, Jesus was moved with compassion and, and he touched their eyes and immediately they were healed. He restored their sight and they followed him. And once again, when Jesus traveled, there was a man who had leprosy. He said, Lord, if you're willing, you can heal me. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. And immediately leprosy left him and he was cured. And then one day in amongst Jesus' travel, he saw a funeral procession. And here was this, this single mom. And I mean, this, this, this single mom with her son who had died. And it was a funeral procession for her son. And she had no one else. And she was in distress. And when Jesus saw her distress and saw her, her crying, he, he, he was filled with distress. He was moved with compassion. And when this Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. Some translation says he was moved with compassion. I love this translation. His heart went out to her. That Samaritan, just like Jesus, as he traveled and saw the misfortune of this one who had been beaten and been robbed, his heart went out to him even though it was not one of his own. And I loved moving ahead. I loved the question Jesus asked this expert in the law when he had finished the parable, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of these robbers? And the expert said, the one who had mercy on him. Come on. Hasn't God given you so much? Be generous. With what God has given to you. And when I say be generous, it's not always about the money, folks. This Samaritan gave of his time, he gave of his abilities, and he gave of his resources. The third thing I took note, which made him a generous man, was that his help was very practical. Have you ever thought about how practical? Here's a man 
Because of his misfortune, his suffering, he's in pain. He's been beaten. He's been left as half dead. And the Samaritan comes, and he must have been prepared for a trip. He had a first aid kit. He bandaged. He cleaned. He sanitized the wounds. After taking care of that immediate need of, of the, the sores, he, he then somehow picks him up and places him on his own animal, the donkey, and, and they travel to the best western. I, I don't know where. They travel to an inn. He, he gets him a room. He takes care of him. He goes to the innkeeper and says, Hey, here's two silver coins. Here is for the guy's lodging. How much more practical can you get? But do you know what we do many times? We hear of someone's needs. And we'll say, oh, hey, we'll be praying for you. Now, don't get me wrong. Prayer is important. Prayer is very important. But a lot of times, we don't want to get involved. After all, what's mine is mine. And let me just pray. And that will justify that I was concerned about their need. Can I? I, I thought about this at length. Could you imagine the Samaritan, Samaritan coming, seeing this man, kneels down, oh Lord Jesus, have mercy on him, heal him. Come on. Listen, I, I am not, please, I am not degrading the value of prayer. But sometimes the practical is just as important as prayer. Amen. He heals them. I mean, he, he bandages. He takes care. He does that which is practical. Sometimes it may mean filling someone's car up with gas. Or it may mean this time of the year, come on, parents, you're, you're waiting for that dreaded email, you're waiting for that dreaded letter from the school of all the supplies your kids have to have for school. And for some single parents who have multiple children, getting all their school supplies, man, that, that can be overwhelming. Well, let's pray for all the single parents that they can get their children's, all their school supplies, which is great. But how more, more practical would it be to take one of that single parent, hey, can I have your list? And not just give them the money, but take their kids out, take them shopping, and fulfill the list of all the requirements that they need. Practical. Sometimes it's just as simple as spending time with someone. I... Recently heard of someone who, a loved one who's dying, and the person says, I don't know how to pray for, for my loved one who's dying. And someone said, well, maybe it's important that you just sit by them and hold their hand. Practical. James says it this way. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothing and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? 
Here's a Samaritan going about his travel plans. Aware, sees, moved with pity, goes to him and is very practical in showing his care. But as much as the practical is important, I love the follow-up. Sometimes it's easy to take care of a need, and then you, you, you don't, you, you wonder, like, hey, okay, I took care of the need, and okay, it's off me now, and do-do-do, out my very way. I love his follow-up. I love what the Samaritan does. He's got to go about his travel plan, but he's still concerned about the man. So he goes to the innkeeper, hey, man, hey, here's, here's some money for his night's lodging. Can, can look after him. Well, is he your cousin? No. Is he a relative? No. Who, who is this man? He, he, he's, he's a Jew. Well, don't you? Don't, but that doesn't matter. He's in need. Look after him. And when I return, I, I will stop by. I, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Because what God has given me, I want to be generous in helping others. Look after him. Take care of him. And whatever the cost is, don't worry. I'll reimburse you. This Samaritan goes the extra mile. Pastor Bonnie, you can come. I was thinking about generosity. My... Father, and I, I, I mean as well, taught me a lot of lessons. Mom and dad taught me a lot of lessons. And they were generous up to a point. Do you know what I'm saying? They were generous up to a point. But, you know, when it came time to tip the waitress, <laughs> so, sometimes it's just a matter of a dollar or two extra. You know, but... And I look back upon my own life. And I thought, where did I learn this principle of generosity? Early in the ministry, we were always on the receiving end. There was a season in our life in ministry where people saw a need and we're constantly giving to us. And can I be honest? That's humbling, man. That's humbling. And every time someone gave something to Heather and I, my prayer was, Lord, I know there's going to be another season in my life, and I want to be generous with what you give to me. I'm just being plain honest. The year was 1983. Spring of 1983, Pastor Bonnie, you had just turned one. We were down in Winchester, Virginia. I was a youth pastor down there. And it was early June. That evening, there was a softball game. I was on the church softball team, and we were all out there. And it was just a hot, muggy night in June. All the ladies were up in the stands. 
Bonnie was sweating, Heather was sweating, the ladies were talking and talked to me about air conditioning and this one lady by the name of Carol Haymaker. And Carol, if you're watching, some, actually some people from Winchester still watch some of our shows. And Carol, if you're watching, thank you for your generosity. Carol was striking up a conversation with Heather and Heather talked about how, yeah, it's, sometimes it gets hot in the house, in, in this townhouse, and we open the windows and she says, well, don't you have central air there? And Heather says, yeah, but it's, my husband's afraid to run it because it's too costly. You know, I was trained as a child, you know, only when it was 110 did dad turn on the air conditioning. You know, because it costs money. And I, I, and, and we, I mean, it was limited funds then. And I was at work every day in an air-conditioned office while Heather was home with Bonnie in this little plastic infant seat that she would stick to because she was so sweaty. You know, you just, you pick her up and the seat comes with her. After the game, we got into the car. And Heather says, the ladies were talking and Carol Haymaker told me to tell you that when we get home, close the windows, set the thermostat to 72, and turn on the central air. And when the electric bill comes in, don't open it, give it to her. (laughs) My manhood. You know, sometimes it's humbling, man. I remember going home, turning the thermostat, turning on the air. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. The electric bill came in that following month, sealed, hand-delivered to Carol Haymaker. Thank you. She goes, no, thank you. The following week, I go to church. She comes to me. She gives me a check. She says, here, this is for the rest of the summer. I don't think you'll find it as expensive as you think it is. Follow-up. Not only following up, but teaching me a lesson. Generosity. Just what God has given me, we give to others. Thank you for being such a generous church. Would you bow your heads with me?